This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is a Business Radio special presentation focusing on the business behind politics. Here's your host, policy advisor, and expert on international law and global governance, professor of law, and director of the Perry World House Global Policy Research Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, William Burke White. Hello, and welcome to the Business Behind Politics special here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Cirrus XM 132. I'm Bill Burkwhite, director of the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. And as someone who thinks a lot about foreign policy and politics, there's no moment more exciting than the current one as we watch the U.S. elections unfold. So today we're bringing you this special programming on the upcoming midterm elections. Over the next two hours, we'll cover a range of topics, including running a campaign, the influence of money on politics, how business and the economy will be impacted by the upcoming elections, and much, much more. We'll bring you insight from top political and business minds so you know what's at stake and what to expect when America goes to the polls on November 6th. I'm now thrilled to introduce our first guest, Carl Rove. Carl is the former senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to President George W. Bush. And Carl's had a long and distinguished career advising many different campaigns. Carl, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Carl, you started your career in politics kind of early, back with the National College Republicans. But a lot of people hear terms about political strategists and chief strategists and campaign managers and don't quite have a sense of who these people are. So could you tell us a little bit about what's the normal background for a campaign manager or a chief strategist? How do you get into roles like you had uh, working for uh, former President Bush? Well, uh, my my journey to get there started when I was literally a teenager. I happened to have a great teacher, as a lot of people have in high school, and uh, Eldon V. Tolman of uh, Holiday, Utah, and he said, Mr. Rove, very formal guy, Mr. Rove, uh, everybody else can get an A in this uh, course by satisfactory completion of the coursework, except you. If you want to get an A, you have to get involved in a political campaign, and I did, and one thing led to another. i was active in a campaign in high school, and it caught the eye of some people at the Republican National Committee who uh, offered me a job working to organize college campuses in Illinois in, the, in a Senate race, and then I was uh, asked to help uh, out at the National College Republican headquarters, and uh, then I was offered a job by a tall, lanky uh, Texas uh, oilman who had lost a couple of races for the U.S. Senate and had been made Republican national chairman named George H.W. Bush, and so it sort of went from there. But uh, that's one of the great things about politics is is that at any time in your life you can sort of make an entry into into the business of politics. Well, certainly you have been a political junkie from the get-go in in that case, and it's an incredible set of of campaigns you've advised and and managed. And what does it really take to you know manage a campaign? What's a day like when you're there advising a candidate uh, right in in the in the run-up to an election? Yeah. Well, look. Uh, think of the think of it as a, a short-lived business enterprise. You start the campaign. Uh, let's take the the uh, you know a gubernatorial race for example in Texas, 1986 uh, gubernatorial race and started a year before the election. The former governor of Texas, Bill Clements, 
decided to run for re-election after being defeated in 1982. And literally, over the course of about 14 or 15 months, this is this is back in the Andalusian era. Um, you know, you, you start a business enterprise, you go out and raise, in that case, uh, you know, 20. Twenty-five million dollars. You uh, set up an organization who attempts to to contact individually, literally uh, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and move your candidate around. Establish a brand. Establish a message. Uh, get that message in front of the right people, and then on election day, get fifty percent plus one of the market. And in a presidential campaign, the 2020 presidential campaigns will probably end up spending a billion dollars, and they will have essentially they'll spring out of you know, virtually nothing, and and two years later conclude after having spent you know six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred million dollars to a billion dollars on uh, attempting to get you know fifty percent of the of the of the vote in the electoral college, two hundred and seventy electoral votes. Well, Carl, you know we're talking about business and politics. I love your framing that campaigns are the only enterprise that's really set up with that short a time horizon. If they do their job right, they're out of business the day after election day. I guess even if they don't do their job right. But how does that change how, as a business enterprise, a campaign works? Its pace, its decision making structures. When you know that clock is ticking toward November sixth. Well, you put your finger on something that I think is not thought of enough which is how do you structure the campaign for effective decision-making? Because it's got to, it takes place over a relatively quick period of time. It, uh, it, uh, uh, it, you know, things come at you at a pace that is hard to believe. So you have to have a nimble decision-making process in which authority and responsibility are aligned and in which people are clear as to their roles and missions. And you have a leadership team that can come together quickly, make decisions, argue it out vigorously, but, but arrive at a conclusion and move on. Now, it, it, that's easy to say, but really difficult to do in political campaigns. You only have to look at recent presidential campaigns that uh, were you know, sort of rife with backstabbing and betrayal and uh, leaking and, uh, and, and, and decision-making that was at best uh, episodic and haphazard. But that's the, that, I think, is one of the real keys to a successful campaign. Uh, in fact, I'd say there are three keys to a successful campaign. One, and the one, and the most important is a candidate who understands why he or she is running. What is their message? Why? What is it that they want to achieve? And how can they share that with people? It's got to be authentic. It's got to be true. It's got to be important. It's got to be relevant. It's got to be something that that is clearly ingrained in them and not simply given to them and, and told to, to sell it to the public. The second is a definitive plan of action. How are you going to get to where you want to be on Election Day? Who's going to vote for you? And more importantly, who's not going to vote for you? And how do you shape the message, the arc of the narrative over the course of the campaign to draw people to to you to get to that 50 percent of the vote? And then finally, there's got to be a decision-making process in, in place in the campaign, a structure that allows you to adapt to all of the challenges that come your way, because just like in war, uh, your battle plan will not survive its first contact with the enemy. You'll need to change. You'll need to modify. But you need to start with a plan and modify from there. But to do that, you've got to have the right kind of decision-making apparatus. And, and you use the war analogy, but you could also use the business analogy. You've got to have a Absolutely. great a great decision structure. And we hear about right. lots of turbulence in campaigns as leaders shift and, and power changes. But getting a good structure is critical, in part because of the sheer volume of money being spent so quickly. You mentioned a billion-plus dollars being spent in the year of campaigning. What are some of the business 
toughest decisions campaigns have to make uh, and make so quickly uh, when, say, when you were there? What kinds of business decisions were you uh, making on a daily basis? Well, first of all, the, the fundamental decision is how much money do we think we need and how much do we think we can raise? And, and, and that, that, again, that sounds easy, but, but making those two reconcile to each other. You don't know uh, your budget at the beginning, in other words. Well, you have to, you have to come up with a budget, yep. but it then has to be tempered by the people who are raising the money, uh, telling you we can do that or we can't. And then you also have to look at the, at the spend rate versus the income rate. And in most campaigns, uh, you sort of build up resources at the beginning and, and expend part of them, and but try and build up a reserve so that when you get to the point where people are actually starting to make decisions, in a, in, in, uh, either in the primary or the general election, that you've got resources on hand. But you've got to make certain that those, that those, two, those, those two flows, the flow into the campaign of money and the flow out uh, for a campaign activity, that, the, that those two are, are, first of all, balanced out at the end, but that the money is coming in before you actually need it so so you can execute when you need to, not when you finally have the money. You know, Carl, I I guess I'm curious as to how much money is actually needed to compete today. These sums sound staggering, but what, what sort of sums does it take to play either in a House race or a Senate race or a presidential race uh, in, in today's American politics? Well, first of all, it all depends on where you are. So right. Different states say, have different uh, cost structures. Right. And, 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 different, and within states, there are different cost structures. Let's say you're running for Congress in Texas, and you're running in, in, the, in the panhandle of Texas where you've got you know, Amarillo and Lubbock, where you've got to worry about buying TV time or radio time. That's a heck of a lot cheaper than when you buy, let's say you're running to Dallas or Houston, mm-hmm. when literally you're buying on, on media that is broadcast over a wide area. So it, it really depends on where you are, um, and it also depends on the opposition. So, for example, you, the person who spends the most money doesn't always win, but if you get grossly outspent, particularly at the end, it can be very problematic. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a balancing act, uh, but it, it, let's, let's be honest, a modern congressional campaign in an average district is going to ultimately cost the, you know, several millions of dollars. Uh, in, in an open contest with with uh, with a competitive district and and in, in a state even a state like uh, North Dakota the Senate races this year are the Democrat is spending I think twelve million dollars the Republican is spending six or seven million dollars and then there's outside spending so you can imagine I mean in Texas we're going to have a a Senate campaign this year where the Democrat will spend a hundred million dollars and his Republican opponent will spend. You know, I don't know, $40, $45 million by the time it's all over. So campaigns today are big business, if ever imagined. I mean, those numbers are right. staggering. Let me remind our audience that I'm speaking with Carl Rove, former senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to President George W. Bush, here on Cirrus XM's Business Behind Politics. Carl, I want to touch on the second thing you said that you need to run a campaign, which is a great candidate with a good message. And I guess I'm wondering, when you're advising a candidate, how much are you positioning the candidate versus the message? I mean, what really are you out there marketing to the voter? Well, first of all, that's the, the candidate and, and his or her message is the most important component. The plan and the decision-making structure, number two and number three. Gotcha. But it all really does start with the candidate. Because at the end of the day, look, we have this view, of, of particularly in the modern, you know, sort of 
media, you know, culture. You know, re- remember the movie The Candidate starring Robert Redford? And, yep, great you know, film. And great film. And, uh, and, and there's a humorous, uh, uh, there, you know, The Candidate uh, with Will Ferrell and, and uh, Zach Galifianakis. I mean, we, we have these movies that make this seem like this is all a, you know, it's, you, you put up a television advertisement and somehow or another that is able to sway the voters in some way that they might not otherwise be swayed. It's, a, it's, it's artificial. It's contrived. Well, the way to think about a political campaign, particularly one for president or one for governor of a big state or a U.S. senator or even Congress, is that at the end of the day, it's like the emperor's new clothes. Remember the childhood story, the childhood tale? Sure. At the end of the parade, we saw the emperor buck naked you know, walking down the street. Well, that's we 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 see candidates for these high-profile races as they really are, and we don't assume. Most people don't assume that 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 everybody that they're seeing is if they're for them, they're completely, you know, perfect, and if they're against them, they're completely bad. People don't look at it that way. They try and make a judgment, particularly in a race for like president, as to what are the strengths and weaknesses of that individual. And the, and a good campaign tries to understand how to portray their candidate at his or her natural best on a good day. Uh, and it's, again, it sounds easy to do, but it's really hard. You've got to understand who is that person, why are they running, what do they really care about, how's, what's the best way to talk about that, when is it, you know, how do you roll that out? You can't give them everything at once. How do you, how do you build a story in which you're building, putting building block upon building block to, to create the arc of your narrative? All of that has to be done carefully over the t- over time, but it really starts with who is your opponent, what are his or her strengths and weaknesses, how do they match up against the other opponent, and what's the best way to tell the story of your candidate in a way that's compelling and durable over the course of the campaign. And, Carl, partly, of course, you're telling the story of the candidate that you're working for, but that candidate also exists in a sort of broader national landscape or even local landscape of issues that matter, things that are salient to voters, events that are happening around the country and around the world. How do you sort of strategically position the person who you've just talked about within that broader landscape of, 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 of background? Well, you have to understand what it is, and and again, you, it, authenticity matters. Mm-hmm. There there are a couple of issues where people will say, you know, that's a make it or break it issue for me. But a lot of issues, what they want to know is what are you thinking, and how have you thought about that? And they may they may somewhat disagree with you or somewhat agree with you, but it's more how do you how do you talk about it? So, for example, uh, George W. Bush when he ran in two thousand. He was a pro-life candidate, mm-hmm. uh, and and he be personally pro-life, and so people would raise the issue to him, and he would answer it in a way that 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 was you know that he, that w- was true and authentic to what he believed, but but served to indicate to people that he understood that this was an issue about which people had deep concerns. He said, "Look, I understand that uh, that uh, this is a, a deeply personal issue." Uh, I understand that the Supreme Court has held that we will have abortions in America. As someone who is pro-life, I, I, I want to know what we can do to find common ground to, you know, make it possible for us to have uh, to, to to honor a culture of life and to help protect the life of the unborn. So it was not, you know, in your face. Here's where I am. If you don't agree with me, you're wrong. It was an attempt to say. 
there's a common ground that we can all find in things like uh, having parents involved in the decision of their teenage daughters as to whether or not to seek an abortion. And, uh, you know, alternatives to abortion, like uh, we should make it easier for people to adopt. And that kind of, you know, the, again, the point is, is that you, you're not always going to have people agree with you, but how can you t- say what you want to say in a way that is clear about your fundamental principles, but says to people, if you disagree with me, I re- you know, you still have my respect, and I hope I have yours. It's a challenging uh, marketing challenge, I should say, oh, you know, absolutely. figuring out how you take the person and the issue set and then present them to the voter. Carl, you've been in this business for a long time. In fact, you know, early in your career, you started a direct mail business, uh, Carl Roven Company. Today, so much of campaigning happens on social media and with new technological advances. I'm just wondering if you can reflect a little on what's changed over the course of your career, particularly with respect to this issue of authenticity. Back in the day, you sort of shook the hand of the voter. Today, you have 50, you know, face. Facebook or Twitter posts about them uh, rather than uh, knowing the candidate themselves? Well, you know, the, the, the technology is a terrific tool, but it is a tool. Again, the question is, is it displaying what is authentic and true? Is it giving, the, 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 is it giving an accurate picture of the candidate on his or her best day? Or is it a, a contrived? If it's contrived, they'll get you. They'll find out about it. Um, but you're right. There are a lot of tools that are available today that are, you know, uh, micro-targeting. We can now take the voter file and uh, overlay it with lots of uh, consumer information, conduct a large survey, overlay that data onto the file, turn it over to the data boys, and what happens is we get back micro-targeting. We literally know on a scale of 1 to 100 how likely is a person, a specific voter, to vote for you. On a scale of 1 to 100, how likely are, are they to turn out to vote? And then we know about about them. What are the buttons that are most likely, if we push them, will 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 generate what, uh, the greatest likelihood of them supporting you? Uh, and then we have you know all kinds of social media. We have you know we we have addressable TV ads today. We can literally say, okay, we want to go after Joe Jones and Susie Smith, and they're they've cut their cable, but they still watch TV. So when when Susie you know pulls up her favorite program. We literally will have an ad waiting in the queue to pop up on our screen. And when Joe goes and turns on the, the TV to watch his favorite program, we will literally be able to address a specific ad to him that pops up regard if it's 2 o'clock in the morning when he decides to catch up on, on, on his favorite series, we're going to be able to pop an ad up in front of him. I mean, think about how much the technology has evolved to allow us to personalize the campaign in that way. But ironically enough, I think two things have happened. One is it makes it even more important that it be authentic and accurate yep. and a true, a true depiction of who you are. And second of all, it's returned us back to where we were in 1840 when a tall, lanky lawyer in Sangamon County, Illinois, wrote a letter to his campaign committee. Make a perfect list of the voters. Ascertain with certainty for whom they will vote. Have the undecideds talked to by someone they hold in confidence. And on election day, make certain that every Whig is brought to the polls. Now, Lincoln was a pretty great president, but he was also a good practical politician. And that idea of have the undecideds talked to by someone they hold in confidence, which was the center of politics in 1840, is back to the center of American politics today. And it's largely because technology helps us do it. That's incredible that we've come full circle like that. But, hey, briefly, does this new model cost a lot more than, you know, Lincoln's model? Well, hard to make comparisons because today we have federal election laws, so we know what the spending looks like. Back then they didn't. 
but but those new technologies that you just talked about are a big uh, you know draw on campaign resources. Yes, they are. But also, ironically enough, they can cut costs. For example, uh, starting in 2014, I'm involved in a super PAC called American Crossroads Senate Leadership Fund. And we began buying TV by using not simply, in the old days, you'd say, okay, uh, we want to, the polling data says we've got a weakness with women aged 35 to 55. So we'd go to the television stations and say, sell us the TV programs that have a preponderance of women aged 35 to 55. So the average TV buy was roughly 80% network and 20% cable. Well, in, starting in 2014, we began to overlay our micro-targeting data on, on the voter file and laying on top of that viewing patterns because a lot of, a, a lot of, um, of uh, cable companies, there's a, there's a computer keeping track of what you watch on TV. It's called your cable box. And that data is now being... Uh, that the data is now being monetized, so we're you're able to tap into that. So you can model not only you know what are the programs that they say mo- the age 35 to 55 are watching. You can literally get the programs that your target group of persuadable voters is watching. So what we began to buy TV by integrating that that cable to- top data wherever we could, and we found the following: we found it cut, cut the cost of buying TV by 15 percent. Wow! Because because we ended up. Buying, it, 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 the data drove us to buy 40% cable and 60% network and to buy less expensive spots. Everybody would try and bid for the what are called news adjacencies in the local news. Well, it turns out that many times the persuadable voters aren't watching the local news. So, And, and not only that, but we that was a, to allow us to get to what is called a thousand gross rating points. The rule of thumb was you need a thousand gross rating points to drive home a TV ad, because it, that would mean that people would see it roughly ten times. Well, when we bought the TV using this new data structure, it not only cost us fifteen percent less, but we realized we found out that people were seeing our ad three times or four times as much as they would under the old structure. So we actually didn't need to buy a thousand gross rating points of television. We could buy eight hundred points or seven hundred points and still and have get more the same result. Well, so, it is it is clear that technology has completely yeah. reshaped this business and, and changed the business proposition. I want to thank you, Carl, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That was Carl Rowe, former senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to President George W. Bush. I'd now like to welcome our next guest, Ken Vogel, a reporter for The New York Times, and Washington Post reporter Michelle Yehi Lee. Both Ken and Michelle cover the confluence of money, politics, and influence, topics critically important to the election America is making on Tuesday. Ken and Michelle, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having us. So I want to start by talking about the amount of money being spent in this election cycle. Um, Ken, can you start by giving us a sense of how it compares to what was spent in 2016 uh, and how much these midterms uh, are costing? Well, it's less money overall than 2016 because it's just a midterm. Right. It's not a presidential election. Super Bowl. But if we can isolate out, which is tough to do, how much is being spent on the midterms uh, exclusively in a, in a you know a presidential election year, uh, it looks like it's going to be the most expensive midterms ever. Of course, that's something of a cliche when you cover money in politics. Every election is always more expensive than the preceding one, but it looks like uh, the the sort of um, increments in which or the percentages in which the spending is increasing is greater than what we've seen in past midterms with uh, about two weeks left in the cycle. About $4.7 billion had been spent by candidates 
political parties and outside groups like super PACs and nonprofits. Uh, at this point in the uh, uh, 2014 cycle, it was about $4.2 billion, so it looks like it's going to be surpassed $5 billion, that's billion with a B, for the first time ever this midterms. And uh, that's partly because, like I said, there's just inflation in politics and political spending, as there is in uh, many other fields in business. Uh, but it's also a reflection, I think, of some of the passion of both big donors who are giving unprecedented sums to uh, super PACs and other outside groups, and also small donors who are really powering particularly Democratic candidates who are raising some fundraising records worth of uh, hauls in the in the run-up to the midterm. So, Michelle, big politics is big business. We've just heard some of the, the numbers. Should we be concerned about this? Are these numbers problematic? Uh, how do we read this? The big numbers raised on both sides, I think it really shows you how polarized the country really is right now. Uh, the small dollars really flowing into um, the Democratic coffers. I mean, it's like really record amounts of low dollar donations under 200 coming from the very anti-Trump fueled donors who are really trying to make uh, Congress flip because they're so frustrated, they're angry and they're upset and they want to make a difference. And then when you see the big donors, especially on the right, who are lining up to try to protect these Republicans in Congress from losing their seats, I think they're also feeling very passionate about Trump and making sure that his allies stay in Congress and that he has support on the Hill and um, are fueled by him and the policies that he's supporting. Uh, And I think it really just underscores how divided the country is and feels right now. So that division in some ways fueling a a spending spree. Michelle, can you help us understand this big money versus small money divide? You talked about small donors under $200. What's the big money in politics? Is that the sort of $2,700 that an individual can give when you say big money on the right? Where's that money coming from? The big money on the right is coming from wealthy millionaire and billionaire donors who are spending upwards of $100 million per election. So these are uh, donations that are going to super PACs, which can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money to help um, candidates. Uh, they can't directly coordinate or contribute to the candidates, but they are running their own independent political campaigns to help bolster the candidates that they support or to attack their the opponents of the candidates that they support. Um, I did an analysis uh, recently looking at how much money that super PACs have raised since 2010 and found out that ele- just 11 donors have contributed a billion dollars, which made up for one-fifth of all the money that super PACs have raised since they have existed. So that's like about $100 million per donor almost. Yes, and wow. Sheldon and Miriam Adelson um, this year have spent more than $100 million on the elections um, to support Republicans, mainly funding the Congressional Leadership Fund, the super PAC that is aligned with House Republicans, and the Senate Leadership Fund, which is aligned with uh, Senate Republicans. And then on the left, you're seeing massive amounts of money coming in from Michael Bloomberg, who used to be a political independent, but recently registered as a Democrat. And he, like, in just the first half of October, dumped more than $40 million to help Democrats, which really worried Republican strategists because it just kind of 
came super last minute, and it could really make a difference in some of the closest race races. And I mean, this is massive, massive amounts of money. And then you contrast that with the smaller dollar, dollar donations from people giving five, ten, fifteen, maybe a hundred dollars per person. Um, these are donations that are less than two hundred that are not reported publicly. Um, except in some cases, and it can show you grassroots momentum on the ground for specific candidates. So, so Ken, I want to ask kinds of money. Ken, I want to ask you to, to help us understand. You wrote a book uh, on on big money in politics about the Citizens United decision of the U.S. Supreme Court back in 2010. Can you tell us how Citizens United sort of reshaped and created the landscape that Michelle just explained to us? Yeah, it did that by uh, striking down laws that barred corporations, individuals, and unions from spending unlimited sums on overtly political advertisements. We had seen before the Citizens United decision that some of these outside groups would spend money on what was known as issue ads, Mm -hmm. and these were largely indistinguishable from campaign ads. They just couldn't say vote for or against a particular candidate. So these are the types of ads that you would see where they would say things like, call candidate X and ask them why they hate babies and ice cream and balloons. You know, and clearly you're thinking as a viewer, that's, a, that's an ad against candidate X. But in the eyes of the law, that was an issue ad because the issue was balloons and babies and ice cream. Uh, so once those rules were overturned, you could have more direct spending by these outside groups, corporations, and individuals that would say things like vote against so-and-so. And so while it changed the sort of legal framework, what it really did was embolden some of these big donors and their lawyers, really, more so, to uh, have them kind of set aside the qualms that they may have had before about potentially running afoul of campaign finance laws, the purpose of which are really to, uh, to you know, reduce the role of big money in politics and uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, further this idea that no one individual voice uh, or donor was more important than any other individual voice or donor. Now you have that concept basically entirely disregarded and uh, big donor spending without any uh, real impediments. What was interesting about the decision, this, the, uh, the Citizens United, United decision, decision back, uh, and, uh, and some of the uh, thinking afterwards, you know, there were, I think a lot of the folks who followed this stuff, reporters, but also political operatives and even candidates and party bosses thought we were going to see a real privatization of politics where some of these big donors could essentially start their own parties or front their own candidates for office. And you saw large donors on the right, like the Koch brothers, who did really create their own constellation of groups that in many ways had the trappings of a, of a political party and at various points appeared to be on the verge of challenging the Republican Party for control of politics. Uh, but in 2016, the, the, the thinking was turned on its head to some extent by candidates like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, who ran against big donors and didn't really work so hard in the run-up to the primary, the sort of pre-primary period, to cobble together major donors yep. who the thinking was would really control at least who won the party's nominations, if not the presidency. Uh, Donald Trump didn't have a whole lot of support from major donors. Bernie Sanders, not only did he not have support from them, he ran against them and said that they had too much influence uh, and Donald Trump obviously went on to win the presidency, and, and Bernie Sanders gave a much uh, 
more robust run for uh, the nomination than a lot of people expected, given that he's running against Hillary Clinton, who had worked so hard yep. to court these major donors over the years. And so headed into 2020, it will be a big question as to whether the major donors on the left will have a significant role in deciding who wins the Democratic Party nomination and whether the Democrats will actively court them in the same way that Hillary did or that Jeb Bush did the major mm-hmm. donors on their sides in the run-up to 2016 or whether they'll say, hey, the momentum is with the small donors and the benefit that I can get by being able to raise small money from small donors uh, to power my campaign while also being able to say rhetorically, hey, I reject the idea that money buys influence and I don't, I'm not beholden to these big donors. I think that could be a critical divide in the Democratic field headed into 2020. So for those just tuning in, I'm currently speaking with Ken Vogel and Michelle Yehi Lee from The New York Times and The Washington Post, respectively, discussing money's impact on politics. Michelle, I want to turn back to you to ask, what does the impact of all of this money in the election cycle have on the actual functioning of Congress and, and or the White House today? Well, I mean, all the money being raised right now, it's its the Republicans in Congress are just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen and if they're um, going to be booted out of leadership. I mean, but does it buy you know, does the money buy influence once they're you know, once the Congress is seated? And, and how how much impact does that money have on the course of policy in the United States? I think you see some of that influence uh, being reflected in many of the votes that lawmakers take. One key example this past year or two has been the the massive tax reform package that was passed by House Republicans, uh, by the House and pushed by the House Republicans. And that was a huge a priority among the donor class, particularly folks like the Koch Network, the Adelsons, um, and it yielded a lot of great results for them. And there was a point when it looked like Speaker Paul Ryan really was not going to be able to push this tax package through, that some donors were actually speaking out and saying, hey, we got you into mm-hmm. office, we supported you, now do your thing, and we're going to pull support from you if you if we don't start seeing some action um, on this front. And that was kind of a, a very blatant sign uh, about the influence that they have and, and hope to have when uh, they make these massive contributions. I mean, when you just look at Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, they're they're very pro-Israel donors, and you know they um, their main issue is pro-Israel policies. And then you saw a very pro-Israel president, and when he moved the embassy uh, recently, that was a huge win for the Adelsons. That, that that has been like their single big issue, and you can see a lot of these priorities shift and get um, expedited based on the pressures from donors and recognizing that these people, individuals with huge pockets and lots of money to spend, you know what their priorities are, and then you see the lawmakers actually going after those uh, priorities. So money matters both in terms of who's going to win on Tuesday and what they might do once they're in office. Hey, Ken, I want to ask you about a recent piece that you wrote and I just read that apparently if I want to buy the or someone wants to buy the names and email addresses and phone numbers of Trump supporters, his campaign will rent them out to you? Yeah, that's right. And that's not super uncommon. Campaigns like businesses, uh, recognize that there is value in data and there's value in, in, in being able to cobble together a list of supporters' emails, phone numbers, 
social media profiles to be able to uh, both activate your own supporters to get them to do things like call Congress to support a piece of legislation that you favor or oppose one that you uh, oppose, uh, but also to uh, get them to go out to vote, to get them to give money to you. And uh, while there has long been um, sort of a, 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 a trade within politics of, uh, of, of this type of information where campaigns will sort of swap supporters' data, you're now seeing the breakdown of lines between campaigns and businesses uh, because these, you know, some of these businesses realize that uh, when you're looking for, particularly if it's like a targeted demographic that you think might be amenable to uh, purchasing your product or your service or what have you, um, there is no better, uh, there, there are no more highly engaged potential targets than there are in politics. And so we've seen a lot of crossover in recent years. What's new about this, though, is to see a presidential campaign for an active candidate who is running for re-election, who is willing to sell or rent their data to other campaigns or to businesses. More typically, you see that done when a campaign is done, or, uh, in other words, a candidate has lost yep. or is not running again. Like mm. if, in, if when President Obama was re- reelected uh, in 2012, he became much more amenable to renting out his list or sharing it with the Democratic National Committee or other candidates. But before that, he was very protective he guarded of his it. list. He didn't share it. In fact, Democrats were very upset that he didn't share that he wasn't sharing it because he had built the most uh, powerful list in Democratic politics, really in all of American politics, mm-hmm. to that point. But he was worried about diluting the power of his list by yep. having other candidates or potentially businesses sending out emails to it. You might be more inclined to see, uh, you, you know, if you're uh, the recipient yep. of those types of emails, you might be more inclined to unsubscribe from that list because you're getting spammed, essentially. So Trump may be setting aside some of those concerns because he comes out of this background of uh, sort of marketing, marketing himself, marketing his brands, uh, doesn't necessarily see the same type of impediments to renting out the list, but it was something that struck a lot of folks as unusual and also played into, I think, the preconception that Donald Trump is somehow trying to monetize the presidency and even his campaign is trying to make money off of its list of supporters. So look out if you think your inbox already has a lot of spam in it. There may be more coming after some candidates lose on Tuesday. Uh, Ken and Michelle, thanks so much for joining me today. Enjoyed it, Bill and Michelle. That was Ken Vogel, a reporter for The New York Times, and Washington Post reporter Michelle Yehi Lee. I'm Bill Burkwhite, director of Perry Worldhouse at the University of Pennsylvania, and this is the Business Behind Politics special here on Cirrus XM 132. I'd now like to welcome our next guest to talk about trade policy and its impact on businesses across the country. With us is Charlie Dent. He's a former U.S. congressman who represented the 15th district in Pennsylvania for over six terms after recently stepping down from Congress, he is serving as a visiting fellow here at Perry Worldhouse at the University of Pennsylvania. Charlie, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Bill, and everybody on the, uh, everybody who's listening to the program. Well, thanks so much. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, how trade and, and politics are coming together, and maybe the place to start, you know, back when you entered Congress in, I guess it was 2005, uh, compared to today, trade politics have sort of been flipped on their head in terms of who supports trade and who's against it. Wondering if you can help us kind of understand how the politics of trade in the Congress have shifted uh, during that time. Yeah, sure, Bill. What, what, what has changed is, 
You know, I would say pretty much since the Second World War, the Republican Party, at least at the congressional, at the congressional level, you know, presidents of both parties have been, have been supportive of opening markets and, you know, trade liberalization, generally speaking. Uh, but in Congress, the politics had always been Republican members had tendly, tended to be more of the uh, pro-free market, uh, pro-free trade uh, caucus. Uh, the Democrats, because of their strong union base, you know, were much more resistant to uh, free trade. And so now here comes uh, Donald Trump, and who has taken a position on trade that more closely reflects a traditional Democrat or an AFL-CIO Democrat uh, than a maybe a Chamber of Commerce Republican on the issue of trade. So the, the politics of trade have become very scrambled, Bill, in a way that uh, we, we, we haven't seen. Because typically on these trade agreements, and you should know, I think the, I believe the United States has 14 trade agreements with 20 countries. And the United States runs a net trade surplus with those uh, 20 countries, not with every country, but in, in the aggregate overall. So where we have a trade yeah. deal uh, collectively, where those trade deals are in place, we end up exporting more than we import. Overall, yes, yep. that's true. In fact, uh, it, what you, we saw this, too, in recent years. There were deals with, uh, say, uh, Colombia and Panama or CAFTA. That was the Central America trade agreement. Was typically the case is that, uh, particularly in Latin America, many of those countries had very high duties uh, going into to Mexico um, or to uh, excuse me to uh, say Colombia. Uh, we had very high duties, but uh, basically uh, most everything coming in from say Colombia to the United States would come in duty free, 90% of it. And so basically, when we get into these agreements, we end up knocking down barriers in those countries because our market is already uh, much more open. So. That's why we tend to, to do better in these agreements. Where we don't have trade agreements is where we tend to run trade deficits. So help me understand how trade and business have played out in, in your district, the 15th district in Pennsylvania. I understand uh, that you've found that many people in your, many of the businesses in your district really want and support free trade. Help me understand why that is, given the, the broader politics around it today. Well, I, I'll give you some very specific examples. In my congressional district, there's a little company in Hershey called the Hershey Company. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the chocolate and we company. Know what they do. They make a, a lot of confectionery product, chocolate. Well, they at peak, at peak production, they'll make 70 million kisses a day, Hershey Kisses, <laughs> which is a lot of loving. Uh, and and, and, and those, uh, those kisses are all wrapped in a very fine aluminum foil. And so when aluminum tariffs are proposed, um, this immediately causes alarm in a place like Hershey where they import much of that from Korea, some from China, but Europe. There isn't much domestic supply. Or in my old congressional district, I have, you know, uh, I have uh, brewers. I have uh, the, the Yingling Brewery just outside of my old district and the Sam Adams Brewery in Allentown, aluminum cans. In Pottstown, Pennsylvania, there was a company that was making steel beer kegs. They have closed just on the announcement of those uh, steel tariffs. They're the only one left who were making uh, beer kegs. Uh, out of steel in the United States. Uh, so there are impacts. And of course, all the steel users and many companies, small and mid-sized, are integrated with Mexico. I could list companies that you may or may not have heard of. Martin Guitar. If you're a guitar player, you know who they are. Uh, but they're integrated with Mexico. Lutron, the leader in lighting controls and dimmer switches, very integrated with Mexico. Vic Victolic, a company that makes a lot of fire uh, suppression equipment and uh, it's, uh, foundries and all that sort of thing. And uh, and basic components, these companies were all very nervous about any changes 
uh, to NAFTA. Because uh, they both need the raw materials to be able to come in to make that little packaging around the Hershey's Kiss and the market to sell the product at the end of the day. They do, but also because of their, their supply chains and how these companies are structured. So some of these companies have operations in Mexico, but they're all their high-end value-added uh, stuff is up in the United States, and frankly, most of their employment is up here. But say, I'll say some of their lower-end work uh, that will be done in Mexico, and, and so any disruption you know, can create very serious problems. And I think many of them would see NAFTA, for example, as you know, this is they see in North America as one integrated economy, uh, and 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 they see NAFTA as a way to position the United States relative to say China, and that. You know, it's better to send the work, say, to Mexico than sending it off to China. And if work is done in Mexico, it's more likely there'll be a lot more American input. So, Charlie, where, China. where did the, the politics of this uh, free trade sort of go wrong? Because I'm remembering back to the 2016 election, and both parties were only unified in one thing at their national conventions, and that was trade deals like the TPP were a bad idea. And somehow, even with a business community that largely has supported free trade, both political parties turned against it. Correct. In fact, uh, that's a, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. During my own campaign uh, for re-election in 2016, I was running against a Bernie Sanders Democrat. And his whole issue was opposition to TPP, and I was supportive of TPP. And to show you how the politics has changed during those debates of my opponent, I would say that we needed TPP uh, for strategic reasons, that, uh, that you know, we, the United States, and our friends in the Pacific Rim needed to set the standards and write the rules of trade rather than the other way around, rather than the Chinese writing those rules and setting those standards, which would be the worst thing for the American worker. And frankly, that argument wasn't particularly well received by a lot of folks, particularly Democrats. And then then Donald Trump uh, is elected, and one of his first acts as president is to withdraw from TPP. I make those same arguments, and the same people who were criticizing my argument were now applauding me. So it speaks to the tribal nature of our politics that many Democrats are now more free, uh, more free trade oriented just because Donald Trump is not. And many Republicans on the flip side, who I thought were pro-free trade, are less so because Donald Trump is less uh, free trade, more protectionist. So let's talk about the election that's uh, coming up. The question for me is, where does trade fit within the current election? Obviously, this is, uh, you know, not a presidential election. So we're looking at really, you know, House and Senate seats. Where does trade fit? Is there a trade platform for either party uh, in, in the 2018 elections? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're, a, if, if you're a Republican or Democrat running for office, say, in North Dakota or uh, any one of these states in Nebraska or Montana, I suspect in the agricultural states, uh, this is a live-or-die issue for them. Uh, you know, these, these retaliatory tariffs from China on soybeans and sorghum are having an enormous impact on the economies of those states, many of which are fairly one-dimensional, very agriculturally oriented. And so, uh, so trade is a, is a prominent issue, a seminal issue. In many of these campaigns, particularly in the, the rural states, uh, where there are, you know, whether it's on NAFTA or or China, retaliatory tariffs, China, I, I believe that this is a very big issue, and one that again is creating issues for Republican candidates in those states who have been traditionally pro free trade, and at the same time trying to manage this Trump message, where 
uh, you know, the, that where Trump is creating problems for them, President Trump. And the Democrats, on the other hand, are, you know, one, this is one area where they can safely in their districts criticize Donald Trump, you know, on that trade issue and say in North Dakota. We are speaking with Charlie Dent, former six plus term congressman, about the impact of trade policy on the economy and business across the country here on Sirius XM's Business Behind Politics special. One piece of, of Trump's uh, trade agenda has been going after China. And there it's a little more complicated because some, I think, of what Trump has been, been arguing vis-a-vis China uh, makes a lot of sense. The Chinese have at times been sort of cheating on the agreements. Where does the, the China piece fit with the trade agenda in, in this election? You know. How, how do we sort of square what, what what we need to do on China versus the the broader free trade agenda? Well, I think this is really the this is really what has uh, confounded everybody with the president on trade. Uh, there is a bipartisan agreement that China, you know, is stealing intellectual property, coercing technology transfers, and you know, engages in uh, dumping of metals or excess capacity there. But rather than taking on China with our friends and allies. At the WTO, what President Trump led with were, were tariffs on steel and aluminum on Canada and, and Mexico and Europe and South Korea and Brazil, you know, the very countries we need to assist us in the battle with China. And so there is this, uh, this complete and total lack of uh, strategic uh, planning, it seems, on, on the trade issue. So now, okay, now maybe we're getting to a better place on NAFTA with a new agreement. Uh, there are challenges with Europe still. We're getting to a better place, but you know we're fighting with the you know the German car companies. You know, what did they do? Did they invest too much money in America at BMW <laughs> and Volkswagen and, and Mercedes? That's exactly what we want them to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're doing exactly what we want. I was, yeah. So, so this is the uh, this is the conundrum. If if the president had led on China, you know, with those issues and brought our friends and allies to the table, we would be in a much better place. But now, I think some of our allies. You know, are, are you know, let's face it, they're they're unhappy. They they feel like they have been uh, unfairly treated. You know, Canada. You know, we were talking about uh, tariffs on steel for national security uh, purposes against Canada. I mean, really? I mean, you know, I've I've been to the cemeteries in Normandy. There's a Canadian cemetery very close by ours. Uh, you know, we these are our friends and allies, and so they felt, I think, justifiably, you know, insulted to be to be thought of as a national security threat. And you know, and and and. Uh, Bill, I'll tell you, here's another issue. Brazil. The United States runs a trade surplus with Brazil. Their ambassador came to me pleading with me before I left Congress about tariffs on steel. Well, a lot of the coal that's mined in Pennsylvania is anthracite coal, and it's used for metallurgical purposes Mm -hmm. for steel production. So if if Brazil sells less steel to us, we'll sell less coal to them. I mean, it's not that complicated. Uh, So, and, And the coal industry, candidly, in our country is concerned about these tariffs just for that reason, because so much coal goes for export. That's an industry that's been under stress, as you know. Yeah, and trade has become such a complicated topic now that national security is sort of mixed into to pieces of it, and and the way Trump has approached China and, and perhaps leaving out countries like Brazil and then going after Canada. But it will complicate the political environment because trade is no longer seen in in sort of isolation. I guess I'm wondering as we look forward to um, you know to the the, the current election and, and afterward, where do we go from here? Trump is obviously opposed to big trade deals. Uh, you know. Do you see a future for the trade agenda uh, after this election cycle? Uh, actually, I, 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 I do. Uh, but I think both, I believe both political parties and Congress, I think, is becoming much 
much more adult about the issue. And remember this, too. Historically, the Congress would cede a great deal of authority through fast track or trade promotion authority to the president because the feeling always was or the belief was. Can I pause the, you for one second? Yeah. Can you just help our listeners sort of understand that? Who actually makes trade policy? What role does Congress play versus the president? And then sure. we can get to, to sort of what fast track did. Yeah, well, essentially, what the, the, the president, of course, is responsible for negotiating the agreements. You yep. can't have Congress negotiating trade deals, and we are seen generally as fairly parochial. You know, we have an apparel company in our district or a steel plant or whatever, and we, we don't always look out for the national interest. So the president is supposed to be uh, the adult and and the one who's looking out for the national interest. And so Congress granted uh, the authority for the president to negotiate these deals. And in exchange for that, when the deals come back to Congress, the Congress would then uh, not be able to amend the agreement. And it also would only require a simple majority vote in the Senate. So the Congress would have to vote up or down. But in exchange for that, we also have more input into the, you know, into the process than we would have otherwise. But we can't amend an agreement once it's completed by the. Uh, we can't amend the agreement once it's completed by the executive, and we have to vote it up or down. That's the that's the the deal. So to avoid a kind of political breakdown, fighting over amendment after amendment, you Correct. give the president this authority. So we can't. Yeah, we can't let the. You know, the, the president if he negotiates a deal with a country and then and then it goes through Congress and we were to amend it to death and the agreement no longer looks like what was negotiated, well then you can see the problem. <laughs> so. So that's what happens, um, and, uh, and and so now though Congress though is having to, to look out for the national interest because the president, in many respects, has taken on this rather aggressive protectionist uh, agenda, and you know the president on the one hand talks about no tariffs and no subsidies, but much of what we've seen from the administration have been tariffs and subsidies. Uh, so, so there's a there's this, uh, this this challenge for members of Congress. They're going to come in. They're they're going to insist that you know we don't disrupt uh, current uh, export markets. You know, particularly the agricultural uh, members from the agricultural areas. They have the most to lose uh, by far. But even a great state like Texas, a big state, you know, you know, heavy Republican orientation, is very integrated with Mexico on the manufacturing side. So. You know, so these disruptions are going to have, uh, you know, have you know, real potential uh, p- political impacts. You know, the, the the cattle ranchers. You know, we sell a lot of corn and pork and and beef down to Mexico. I mean, we just, uh, you know, we're a big player in that. You know, we much of the fight over NAFTA was over Canadian dairy, mm-hmm. and I would be the first to tell you, Bill, that the Canadian supply management system is is uh, very unfair. But it's not a very big piece of our overall trade with Canada, or frankly with NAFTA. It's really not about the milk to Canada. It's about the cheese to Mexico. It's like to point yep. out, which is more important. But so there's there, there's a lot of complexity to these things. But Congress is going to have to take on a much more of a an adult-oriented role in protecting uh, the national interest. And frankly, it's been a sobering discussion for members of Congress on both sides, uh, particularly the Democratic members who before were very reflexively against these trade agreements. And now I think they've become more more moderate, which is, I think, good. So I'm not going to ask you to predict who's going to win this election, but a lot of polls at the moment might tell us the Democrats are likely to take the House and the Republicans likely to keep the Senate. What would that configuration mean for trade policy over the uh, next two years of, of President Trump's term? Yeah, um, good question. And you're right. I think that's the fair prediction right now that uh, Democrats, you know, will probably take the House and Republicans probably hold the Senate. Um, I suspect, and here, like, let's let's go to NAFTA. The the new the new agreement is Mm -hmm. being called USMC, 
United States Marine Corps, actually United <laughs> States, Mexico, Canada, uh, and this new agreement. So, okay, now if you're a Democratic member, and let's say historically the Democrats have not liked NAFTA, most of them voted against it, will the Democratic members in the new Congress, from being asked to vote to, to uh uh, to uh, accept this agreement, will they then just simply roll over and say, hey, this is the new NAFTA. We didn't like the old one, but Donald Trump negotiated this new deal, which is the greatest deal of all time, you know, in his words. It, will they vote for it? My, my inclination is no. So if there's a Democratic House, I'm not so sure how easy it will be to get the votes to approve this new NAFTA deal. Hmm. I'm not convinced it'll be so easy. Uh, the Senate, maybe, but there and, and people are going to have to go through these uh, agreements, and they're changing the content rules on cars. And um, and I'll tell you what, there is some complexity to that that can have some impacts in some of these southern states, not to mention uh, in Detroit and, uh, and, and Ohio. So I think there's people are still going to have to go through this agreement and understand it better uh, because it could have a perverse effect, even though NAFTA needed to be updated. A lot of people made investment decisions based on the old NAFTA. And we really haven't ever yet kind of dug into the agreement and see what it means for existing business configurations. So a Democratic House might do that. Anything else we might expect uh, vis-a-vis, yeah. say, China or yeah. uh, uh, or Trump's broader trade policy with a Democratic well, House? I'll tell you, the Senate traditionally has been much more pro-free trade in the House. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, it just they, they have larger constituencies, more impacts, and they see the benefits better in the House. China, uh, again, if, if the president is, uh, is smart about this, and if, and if the Democrats want to cooperate with him on a trade issue, I believe China will be the one. Uh, and they'll get Republican support, too, because I mean, there's, there's full agreement in Congress about the you know, Chinese bad practices on trade. Uh, but I think most people don't want either to you know, get to a, be in a trade war with China. Nobody wants that either. So I think we have some potential to, uh, you know, to, to, to come to some understandings on China. But given the toxic nature of the uh, political challenges in this country, um, I, I, I am concerned that even if, even if there might be agreement between the Democrats and Trump on a given issue, it's very difficult for some of the Democrats to be seen supporting the president yep. at this point, just for political reasons. So that's the fear that I have. There's, there's not that uh, – I, I don't know that the Democrats are going to have that level of flexibility uh, to work with the president. I wish, I hope they do, uh, but I'm concerned because the elements of their base obviously are very, you know, stirred up about the president. Well, we'll see what happens on election night. Clearly, trade is going to be a big piece both of how the election plays out and directly impacted by the outcome of the 2018 election. Thanks so much for being with us, Charlie. That was Charlie Dent, former congressman from right here in Pennsylvania. We need to take a short break. When we're back, James Carville will join us for a discussion about building a campaign strategy. I'm Bill Burkwhite, and this is the Business Behind Politics special here on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 